good morning once again. My name is Mark Kelly, if you're here for the first time, and there is a few faces as well. It's good to have you with us. Um, part of the senior leadership here at Freedom Church. And I've got a good word for you this morning. Yeah, yeah, I have. I have. It's all good. Is that it? Is that everybody? Are we all back? Okay, this morning, I, I need you to speak back to me. Okay. Um, I need you to encourage me. That's what, that's what, you know, you, you know when you speak, when you say yes or amen or whatever, you encourage the person that's speaking. Did you know that? And as you do that, you get a better word. Did you know that? It's, it's so true. It's like a feedback loop. It really is. It's like, wow, they like what I'm saying. I'll, uh, good. I'll, I'll speak it more. And then the spirit just does something because you relax. When you're there speaking and all you see is this. It, you begin to think, oh, this is the wrong word for the wrong morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and, and it, it, the spirit starts to not really flow because you're blocking him a little bit. So please, you know, when you get speakers, say yes. If you don't agree with it, don't say anything. I'm not asking you to say amen if you don't agree with it. Um, you've all got your own kind of opinions and, and, and what have you. But if you agree with it, and if you agree with what I'm saying this morning, you get excited about any sentence that I, I utter this morning, just say yeah. Can you do that? Can you go yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You've got to do it like that. Yeah. All right, listen, um, yeah, I'm talking this morning about legacy. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that was your first opportunity and you missed it. Let's, <laughs> all right, listen, I want, I want, I'm going to get a little bit morbid just for a moment. All right, just for a moment. Would it make a difference if you learned you had very little time left? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, tell that year is working. You've got to keep this going for the next 30 minutes. Would... Your priorities changed. Yeah. Would they change if you knew that your life was slipping away? Yeah. yeah, they would, wouldn't they? The simple fact is that we are all running out of earthly time. And that is a stone-cold truth, even if we try and forget about it. I know that when you're, when you're young, it's like that thinking about death and, and end of life, that's, that's, that's a million years away. And when you get to about 40, something weird happens. <laughs> and you're like... I'm on that hill going down. <laughs> I know where I'm heading, which is good, but that earthly time, it's going down. Um, so the opportunity, what I'm getting at, the opportunity to leave the kind of legacy that we want is one day shorter than it was yesterday. The opportunity to leave a legacy, the kind of legacy that we want to leave, the opportunity is one day shorter than it was yesterday. Now, in the Bible, and you've all brought you the Bibles, haven't you? Let's wave them in the air like you just don't care. And wave your, 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 your Apple devices or, or Android devices if you're so inclined. Yes, excellent, good, because we come to church and we bring our Bible, don't we? Yeah, then we get it out of the pockets. <laughs> All right, in the Bible we read that one day a man approached Jesus with similar kinds of questions. Now, phones off, silences, excellent. There's a little button on your side, switch it off. Now, we don't know this guy's circumstances, but we do know he was trying to work through some issues. And, and though Jesus was surrounded at the time by men intent on arguing with him, this one man was not 
one of them. And he approached the group and he said he heard them debating. It's good to debate, guys. It's good to, to tangle with issues and, and things like that. It is not good to just be a yes man or a yes woman. It's good to go, if you do agree, then yeah, absolutely, say yeah. But if you don't and you want to debate that, it's good to debate. Jesus did it, so let's follow his example and do that if it's necessary, but with love and with grace. Let's not forget that, okay? All right, so he heard them debating, and he listened, and he recognized this guy. He recognized Jesus as a brilliant teacher. So he went straight to the heart of the matter. Sometimes it is good for us to go straight to the heart of the matter and to not swanny around, kind of go, you know, going to land the plane, haven't you? You're going to, it's useful to land the plane. If you're a Yorkshireman, land the plane. All right? That's, that's what our reputation says that. So let's land the plane. All right? We love him with grace. <laughs> Right, so let's read this short but so, so important interaction. And let's see how Jesus responded. So turn or, or flick or tap to, to Mark 12, verses 28 to 31. Mark 12, 28 to 31. Okay, and if you haven't got a Bible with you, we do have some over here if you want to grab one. In fact, this is going to be pretty much the only scripture you're going to need this morning. So maybe if you just look at somebody who's got a Bible... And I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. So if you've got a slightly different translation in your hand, the words will be a little bit different. But if you've got the New Living, then you're on the right track. Okay, Mark 12, 28, 31. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen or, or hear in some translations, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. He asks a straight question. Jesus gives him a straight answer. We see that from Jesus' answer that we've got to have a twofold approach to life. Love God and love the people that God puts around you. Jesus modeled this perfectly. His legacy had more impact on the world than any other individual in history. We, 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 we order our years against Jesus. So regardless where they want to make it BCE or, or whatever they're trying to fudge into it, it's AD and BC. It's bef- it, they're still using Christ as the point to, to measure the time. He, he is so, so important. Such an impact he left. And he didn't leave a legacy of property or money or power. Instead, he left a legacy of what? Of loving God completely and sacrificially loving us. And with an estimated Two billion Christians out of a world population of about seven billion. That's 28% of the world. And this just for the, you know, these estimates, they, they could be a lot more. That's a pretty powerful legacy, isn't it? 2,000 years later, Jesus still impacting the world. Can I get a year? Excellent. Let me break down these two verses. So, number one, a legacy. Of loving God completely. So when Jesus asked the most about the most important commandment of all, he quoted something called the Shema. In Hebrew, you haven't got the E. <laughs> it's got an apostrophe. Shema. Shema. 
And in Hebrew, that's the Jewish language of the day. Hear, O Israel, is Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Now, so important is this passage. It's often the, the, the first one that a Jewish child will memorize. So treasured are the words. They're, they're still quite often written on small scrolls, rolled up, and then, and then inserted into a small container called a... Anybody know? Anybody know? A mezuzah. Not a vuvuzela, Rizon. It's outside. A mezuzah. And I don't know if you've seen them. Sometimes um, some, some individuals we know, they have them in the doorways. And you place them in the doorways. And particularly in Jewish homes, you'll see them. But uh, I know some Christian friends who have them as well. So they have a short prayer. They have this, listen, O, o Israel, Shema, Israel. So the question, so, so it's really important. So the question of the most important commandment had actually been settled among God's people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and might. And all of Israel already knew this truth. But as with a lot of things, and as Christian believers, we all probably struggle with this. Knowing the truth is the easy bit. Pulling it off is the difficult part. Would you agree with that? Yes. We know the truth. Pulling it off sometimes, is, that's the most difficult bit. But amazingly, not for Jesus. He loved God completely. He wasn't interested in power, in wealth, or popularity. He was extremely passionate about God, and he depended on God through prayer, through knowing the Hebrew Scriptures, which became part of our Christian Bible, and by submitting to God's will, even at the cost of his own life. Do you remember he says, you know, if this cup can be taken from me, but, not, but your will be done, not mine? He knew what was coming up at that point before his crucifixion, but he still went, but actually your will is greater than mine. And I want my will to be your will. So what's involved in loving God completely? And I think the better question to ask is, what's not involved? What's not involved in loving God completely? According to Mark 10, verse 17 to 22, another man approached Jesus desperately wanting to please God. And he ran up to Jesus and he fell on his knees before Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know the story? And Jesus told him, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You mustn't cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Just seeing if the kiddies are listening to that bit. The man on his knees insists. He's on his knees and he insists, I've kept all the rules, Jesus. He thought he was righteous. And he was part of this wealthy Jewish elite that believed they could purchase and work out their righteousness through, through uh, being, that's, that's being morally good or, or justified through what they call almsgiving. That's the practice of giving money or food to the poor. And yet here he is. Here he is, on his knees, waiting for an answer. So something's missing, isn't it? He's doing everything that's asked of him. He's giving to the poor. He's, he's, he's probably reading the scriptures day. He's doing everything that's asked for him. But, but inside, he knows there's something missing. So Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him. He looked at him. And he loved him. Note that it doesn't say he looked at him and he judged him. 
It doesn't say he looked at him and condemned him. He looked at him and he loved him. And that, folks, has got to be our first response. Let's look at others and love them. So what does he say? There is still one thing you haven't done, he said. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell and he went away really sad because he had many possessions. And that's where we learn he was a very wealthy individual. So what is the problem here? What's gone wrong? Well, the answer is that he loved his wealth too much to give it all away. And until he was willing to make that sacrifice, he couldn't have the one thing that he lacked. And that was Jesus. When we realize who Jesus is and, when, and what he offers us, there should be no cost that we're unwilling to pay to have it and to have him. There should be no cost. Now, this isn't Jesus telling us that we can't make money. This isn't Jesus telling us that we can't become rich and wealthy. That's not the point of the story, I believe. It's a question of what's the most important thing in your life. And that's what Jesus was trying to bring out the man. Externally, he'd, he'd done all that he thought he needed to do to be granted eternal life. But inwardly, this man was far from it. And Jesus loved that rich young ruler. But the man who came to him couldn't part with the things that he loved. If loving God meant completely submitting every bit of his money to God, he just couldn't cross that line. So he proved that he'd been untruthful. He claimed to have kept all the law since his youth, but he walked away having um, broken the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? We've just read it. Love the Lord. You can say it with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now there's a mantra that I think the Jewish people really had it nailed on. Maybe we need to stick all that above our doorways. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because this man then fell into the category of knowing the truth, but not putting it into practice. I hold my hand up and say, I'm like that. I don't always put into practice what I know is right. And I would reckon, reckon pretty much all of you at some point experience that too. Let me give you... Uh, an illustration. I'll also have a little drink of water. Yeah. Drink, drink of water. Historians tell us that two plagues, so I didn't know this, by the way. This is in my investigation. I've discovered this. Historians tell us that two plagues swept through the Roman Empire while Christians were being horribly persecuted. The uh, Antonine plague was the first and that was a little more than a century after the life of Jesus. And then the plague of Cyprian came about a century after that. And one document says that in Rome, where, where a million people left. So that, that was a massive place for, for that time. You know, cities, you know, a few hundred thousand top. This is massive. Loads of people. Over a million people lived. As many as 5,000 people died a day. Could you imagine that? 5,000 people died a day. Their bodies rotting in the streets, adding to this environment of disease and filth. It just, I can't comprehend that. 
I, I can't get my head around that. But you know, I'm sure there are parts in, in the world today where we're seeing numbers, probably not that high, but, but getting there. But here's the thing. It's recorded that those who call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, followers of the way, they didn't run. They didn't run. They stayed and they brought water to the sick. They fed them. They changed their bandages. They, they spoke kindly to them. They loved and encouraged them. And then they got sick in the process. There's no telling how many people were saved, probably laterally and, and spiritually, because Christians served. And there's no telling how many Christians lost their lives because they stayed behind the world is different today because in the middle of devastating despair, we might call it overwhelming darkness, those who followed Christ saw their opportunity to shine. Wow. Those who follow Christ saw their opportunity to shine. Jesus wouldn't have left the sick to fend for themselves, would he? Jesus would have stayed, Jesus would have healed, and Jesus would have loved. So they did what Jesus would have done. And people all over the world, all over the empire, were just stunned at the difference their love made. The way these people acted, it was as different as light is from darkness. And this is possibly why, possibly why, I'm sure there are other factors as well, why the Roman Empire changed so dramatically. People couldn't ignore the actions of people who loved God so passionately that they would be willing to give up their lives in service to God. When you speak the gospel of salvation from sin to a people who have witnessed Christian love in action, the lost will be saved. I need to repeat that because that's important. When you see people willing to, to, to speak the gospel of salvation from sin to a people of witness, loving action, the lost will be saved. You can't bully, bully people into the kingdom, can you? you? You can't legislate a nation follow Christ, can you? That's a no. But you can love them. You can shine the light of Jesus upon them. And then you can speak the truth into their lives. The local church, so that's us and lots of other local churches across the nation, that decide to use its resources to sacrificially love its community, will discover it holds more power than any person or group in political power. There is no single action that defines a person who loves God completely. But the person who does this well will leave a legacy that will last. And will continue the legacy that Jesus began of loveful action that leads to salvation. Number two, a legacy of loving others. Jesus did something quite powerful. When responding to the question of which is the most important commandment. He added the command to love others as yourself to the already powerful Shema. Yeah? You remember that from a few moments ago? Yeah, even though he added it, it didn't seem to surprise his audience. And he, here's why. There was a raging debate in that day uh, uh, between two points of view on keeping the commandments. One group argued that to properly love God, 
You must keep the commands, even if those commands kept you from helping a person in need. Interesting, eh? If that person was in need on the Sabbath and it would require work to help them, then it would be better to what? Keep the Sabbath. But then there was a second group argued that a person in need trumped the law of the Sabbath. So when Jesus added the answer, love your neighbor as yourself, he was identifying with this more moderate and probably much smaller of the two groups. But Jesus went further. In a very similar story in the Gospel of Luke, an expert in the law tested Jesus with the question of eternal life. And when Jesus responded to his question with a question, the man promptly answered with the familiar words of Shema. And he too added, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus congratulated him. But then he heard a disclaimer. And who is my neighbor? So love God, love my neighbor. But who is my neighbor? So Jesus, if you remember from the Bible, then told uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, making probably most of the group cringe with this thought of crossing racial lines as part of being a good neighbor. You, you just didn't, you didn't do it. It wasn't done. You see, as it turns out, loving your neighbor completely is very similar to loving God completely. It will take your entire heart, mind, soul, and strength to get the job done. And it's impossible to accomplish that without Christ. It really is. Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly. He was constantly criticized for making friends with sinners. Uh, sometimes they were prostitutes. Other times they were tax collectors, those white-collar uh, criminals or dodgy bankers of their day. But Jesus also loved the religious people around him who had excellent morals, like that rich young ruler. He was as comfortable in the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary as he was in the home of Zacchaeus. Jesus loved them all until he'd breathed his last breath on the cross. He wouldn't even hate those who nailed him to the cross. This is mind-blowing when you really begin to think about the love that Jesus just exuded to everybody. He didn't even hate those who had nailed him to the cross. Instead, he chose through the pain, through this agony, to say, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even while they were still in the process of executing him. He ultimately loved us so much that even though we were still in sin, that is far from God, that he finished his work on the cross and died so that we all have a choice to come near to God. So that our community in which we find ourselves has a choice to come near to God. So the city has a choice to come near to God. So the nation and so the world, he did that so that everybody has now a choice to come near to God. I love my Jesus. Ask any pastor, minister, vicar, whatever you want to you call us, who spent a career preaching a funeral sermon, and thankfully I've not done one yet, um, as they are surrounded by the deceased's loved ones, they almost never mention work or money, unless stories are about how their loved one had used a job or money and given to others. Um, instead, stories are told like this. They're told of fathers who read to their kids. Mothers who stop to play with their children. They tell of holidays and days off being a sacrificial and giving grandparent. 
They'll tell of letters written, special days of worship, most importantly, of being loved. For all the funeral addresses I've, I've, I've heard, that's pretty much what you get, isn't it? It's not about the stuff, it's about the who. <laughs> it's been a bit morbid again. If we were to listen to our own funeral service, <laughs> it would probably surprise us to find that the things that others considered about, most about us is not about how successful we might have been or about how much money we actually gave away, but instead how much we loved them. It's in loving others that we best show how we love God. Because Jesus loved his neighbor. That's you and that's me. So we should love our neighbors. That's you and that's me by his spirit. Can I get a year? Fantastic. Let me give you another illustration. So while looking up material for this sermon, I came across this story. Now, I hadn't heard of this guy in the book previous, but um, it's a story somebody else told, so I, I will read it to you. In his book, The Enormous Exception, uh, the author, Earl Palmer. Anybody heard of Earl Palmer? No? Okay. I did a little bit of uh, uh, groundwork on him. Seems like a, a guy to get to know. Anyway, Earl Palmer tells about a pre-med undergrad at the University of California, Berkeley, who became a Christian after a long journey through doubts and questions. About a flu kept him out of classes for 10 days. And during that critical absence from his organic chemistry class, a Christian classmate carefully collected all his missed lectures and assignments. And the person took time from his own studies to help his friend catch up with the class. Years later, the pre-med student, now a Christian, told Palmer, you know, that, that this just isn't done. And I, I probably wouldn't have done it. But he gave help to me without any fanfare. Without any complaints. I wanted to know what made this friend of mine act the way he did. And I found myself asking him if I could go to church with him. Palmer wrote, I think the best tribute I've ever heard concerning a Christian was the tribute spoken of this student. He said this, I felt more alive when I was around my friend. I felt more alive when I was around my friend. I'd love to be that friend. Wouldn't you? I'd love to be able to walk into a room and people go, wow, there's something different happening here. And I can be, and you can be. Spend time with God. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do what you can. Be practically not working your love. You can become that person if you're not that person already. Listen, don't underestimate the importance of Jesus' love your neighbor addition. Just a a quick read of one of the very last parables in Matthew's gospel. It's easy to see that Jesus took this really seriously. It's a story of sheep and goats. Do you know? Okay, it's a story of sheep and goats. And in the separating process, all parties wanted to know why they'd missed their reward because they were goats. Or why they received their rewards because they were sheep. And in both cases, according to Matthew 25, the deciding factor was whether or not those facing judgment had loved others. They either had or had not fed the hungry, satisfied the thirsty, housed the stranger, clothed the naked, ministered to the sick, and visited those in prison. This is what it's about, isn't it? Loving others. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Doing whatever it takes 
Stepping out of your comfort zones. Stepping into something that's uncomfortable. You may just discover that it's your calling. And that really you were denying that for a long time. When it comes to judgment, Jesus shows us that we will be separated according to what we are. And what we are determines what we do. Jesus' sheep follow his voice. They do what he does. They love their neighbor. Let me bring this to a conclusion. Everyone leaves a legacy. Everyone. Every one of us will leave a legacy. For good or bad or indifferent, we'll all leave footprints behind us. We'll be remembered for our generosity or we'll be remembered for our selfishness. Those we leave behind will will, will talk about the ways we loved them or the ways we neglected them. There's only one way to leave a Christ-like legacy, to leave footprints that will last, and you can't do it on your own. You can't find life in loving God and loving your neighbor because that is the law. Scripture makes it clear that the letter kills, but the gospel brings life. If you receive Christ's offer of mercy, let him fill you with his spirit. And then watch as he empowers and teaches you how to love him and to love others. Our legacy of a local church depends on what we choose to do. On, on how we choose to act. We choose to act. What acts of kindness and love are we prepared to sacrificially do to see our community changed and our city changed? Do, do, we, do we care solely about our reputation or do we want to leave a kingdom legacy? Folks, across the city, right, across the city, and I really mean across the city, Loads of people have been impressed and excited about our move to Richmond Hill, East End Park. I spoke to dozens of people. I've heard dozens of, of, of stories, of snippets here and there. People are, are, you know, are amazed at the move we've done. Our, our reputation as a church has, has been polished. And, and, and it's shining bright because of that decision that we made to follow God's call regardless of the consequences or cost. The eyes of, of people across the city are upon us. And as much as they love what we have done and, and the things we say we would like to do, guess what? They're waiting. They're waiting. As I believe God is waiting. And his angels are waiting, and they're waiting to see what we do next. I imagine like a garrison of angels ready to take flight and join us in our mission, ready to stand shoulder to shoulder with us and protect our back from the enemy as we step forward into all that God has got us to do. Can I get an amen with that one? When our reputation, uh, sorry, when does our reputation start to form our lasting legacy? When do we really start to step out and start to love people and show that love in loads of varied and wonderful ways? Because guess what? I'm not prepared to settle for a positive reputation. I'm not prepared to settle for a positive reputation. I want to see our local community and our city, my city, changed. I want to see it change with the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to see this in my lifetime. 
Who wants to see it in their lifetime? That's all of us. Some of us need exercise with this hand. But I believe that's all of us. Personally, I want to leave a legacy that says that I did all I could do with all that God gave me. I did all that I could do with all that God gave me. That I was a good and faithful servant. Do you want this for yourself too? Yeah, you do. Of course you do. You love Jesus. Of course you do. You just need to tell yourself that a, lot, a few more times. As we love others and as we outwork this in loads of practical ways, we'll see his kingdom come. We really will. As we simply love others, the opportunity to share Jesus will come and then it will be powerful. It will be powerful. I've been reading a book recently. I mentioned it to a number of people already and it's called If God Then What? If God, then what? Note this down. I want you to buy it. It's brilliant. I'm going to get some for there. And it's by a theologian called Andrew Wilson. And I really admire Andrew Wilson. Probably got a bit of a man crush. In an intellectual way. And theological way. And I learn a lot from him. I really do. And he's actually three or four years younger than me. But age is irrelevant. Age is irrelevant when we find someone who can speak into our lives, isn't it? It really is. Find that person to speak into your life, to to take you to that next level. Never settle. Forever move forward. Run that race. Anyway, in this book, Andrew Dreams of a City, and and in the city, he talks about London, because that's where he he obviously came from. And, And he dreams of a city that's been changed by the love of Jesus. And it really is a picture of God's kingdom on earth. And, and I'd like to read uh, his vision to you, but I, I've changed it slightly to fit our city of Leeds. And obviously our city of Leeds includes Richmond Hill, Eastern Park, and, and all those other places. And I hope by the end of this, this, this short reading, you're going to feel impassioned and excited to see this do it. Are you ready for this? It's amazing what he wrote. Here we go. Hang on. In the redeemed leads, everyone, everybody knows that they are loved by their creator. This might sound fluffy and religious, but it's the biggest difference between the redeemed leads and the regular one. I don't mean that people believe their creator is real or what they're doing or that they're doing their best to impress him. I mean, they know that no matter what, the God of the universe delights in them. Sing songs over them. Loves them like I love my children. Only more so. People who don't know this can give their whole lives to a pursuit of affirmation that never comes. From carers, lovers, children, parents. Because we're all wired to get our sense of meaning and security from beyond ourselves. It, I just want to touch on that a little bit. It, that is so true. We are wired to, to get affirmation from beyond ourselves. You can be built up and in a second brought crashing back down to earth by what others, by when you learn what others think of you. So if we're wired to seek affirmation from outside of ourselves, I want that affirmation to come from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus. Anyway, that's why people going past the window right now, clearly where he was writing this, are walking so fast because they're trying to balance their family, their social life and their work so that their friends, their families or their boss say, will, will say, well done, you are worthwhile a meaningful person. But in the redeemed leads, people will walk much more slowly because 
they're worthwhile and they know it. They're meaningful and they know it because God says so. And he's the only one that matters. He is the only one that matters, folks. Comparison is a killer. Don't go there. This means that people in the redeemed leads live without anything to prove. In complete security. And this has all sorts of implications that make it hard to recognize it as leads. Even though the, the large town hall that we've got, the Headley Cricket Stadium and the famous old Leeds market is still there. For a start, people on buses and trains make eye contact with one another and smile. Instead of hiding behind their newspapers. Because now strangers are not people to be avoided because they're all scary, but people to be celebrated because they're all happy. There's no brooding clumps of youths standing around street corners smoking or vaping, looking miserable, trying to find their identity and the acceptance of their group because all young people in the redeemed leads already know who they are and why they matter since they know and are known by God. Yeah. Ben, can I get an amen? amen? Good. The roads are weird. Taxis don't cut people up around the train station or in Headingley. Nobody honks their horns in frustration. Bus drivers look happy and you can't hear any sirens. And because there's no insecurity anymore, everybody loves diversity. You, you see white people uh, stopping Arab people in the street to ask them about all the beautiful things in their culture and how to enjoy a really long meal and how to greet people properly. People's hearts have changed too. It's like everybody's got new desires, new passions, because they're all pursuing their happiness in the joy of God and the joy of others. And that changes everything they do. Impoverished areas like Beeston or Chapeltown don't actually exist anymore. And subsequently, we don't hear of any negative stories and nobody kills or abuses or cheats on anyone. It's not just that people don't do bad things. It's they don't even want to. There's no hatred in East End Park, no greed in Adel, no jealousy in Rothwell, and no lust in the calls. Beauty is celebrated, but without anyone trying to own it to the exclusion of others. The seedy brothels and the pole dancing clubs stopped operating long ago, not because somebody made a law about it, but because nobody wanted to cheapen something as beautiful as sex by having it with a woman they don't know in an underground hovel. The billboards around Leeds, which used to have obscene graffiti all over them, now tell stories of how, of how people who used to use graffiti and violence have found forgiveness and acceptance and have had their lives changed. It's as if the whole city has lost the ache in its soul. The ache people were trying to soothe with money, sex and power. People are satisfied, fulfilled Lives. They're living fulfilled lives. And it makes the city so beautiful, it makes you want to weep. And the oddest thing about the redemption of Leeds is the way that people work. In the old Leeds, people would, would work to get money as much as they could. So they get more stuff, look and feel more important, go on nicer holidays and live in nicer flats. In the new one, people still work. But they, they, they don't do it for their own benefit. It's for the whole community. The financial and technology areas of Leeds are still there. Did you know that Leeds is, is, is a financial center and a technological center in the top one or two outside of London? Did you know that? There is so much money flowing through our city. It's incredible. 
I don't know about you, but some things were on pause during the recession, but things didn't stop. It's because there is so much finance flowing through our city. I want some of that for the kingdom of God. I want some of that tech for the kingdom of God. Anyway, they don't do it for their own benefits, for their own community. The financial and technology areas of Leeds are still there, but all the financial whiz kids and tech heads spend their best years trying to work out how to use money in tech to help the most needy people. Or most people, because there is no needy people. All the advertising agencies and council departments use their creativity and communication skills to praise what is honourable and admirable for its own sake. Brigitte, imagine this, Brigitte has become a massive open-air market where every product you can find is crafted with care, from the exquisite and artistic clothing to the rich selection of handmade books to the range of fresh beds from the baker who set up where the tacky vaping shop used to be. Every square inch of the city has had the good reinforced and the bad removed. And it spills over into the art scene, the architecture, the public spaces, even the council. It's a sight to see. That's something like how I imagine the redemption of Leeds to look. At least in outline. Essentially, it's a city full of people who know they are loved by God. And to whom he has given new desires. So they pursue his purposes instead of their own. And love others as they love themselves. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone and we also have lots of fun in this house we definitely forgive we also do loud we give the best hugs we are family and in this house, that means we, we love. love.